Okay, we just went <laughs> back. We just went back. We just went back the other day and saw the here they're running it the 1981 finals, uh, Celtics versus Houston. It was it was something to see. Being that young at that time, it was crazy. But go ahead, we, I'm ready. All right, well, we've already started recording. This is the Hardwood Huddle. I'm Randy Zelia, along with Bill Ingram, as always, the, or as I like to say, uh, the, extre- the supreme leader, as we like to call him, Bill Ingram, since he is our Star Wars resident uh, fanatic. And as well, Cedric Maxwell, uh, who does the, uh, you know, the games for the Boston Celtics. Thanks for giving us some time today uh, during this uh, fun time. And some good news is coming, it looks like. The, the NBA's return could be around the corner. Uh, Cedric, how are we doing today? I'm doing fine, Jonah. I am. Uh, I can't complain. I'm here in Boston, like everybody else, uh, kind of stuck in the house. And uh, you know, I don't have my all my kids are older, so I live by myself. So all I have to do is entertain myself. And the, the best thing going right now is I think um, Netflix. I've discovered. So I've gone <laughs> through this whole range of things where I'm watching Netflix, and and I'm not a star. Wars person, but I'm a, a sci-fi person. So just all kind of different sci-fi things have been on from the Flash to, you know, Black Lightning, the things I hadn't even seen before. So it's been kind of fun watching stuff on the inside. Well, we have a, I have a critical question that we must address before we get into the NBA. And this is like the most important question for you uh, because I came up from North Carolina. My mom's whole side of the family is there. They Most of them still live there, all over Raleigh, Charlotte, Burnsville, Winston-Salem, all over, which is where you came from, a small town in North Carolina. But then my stepdad's family is from Texas. So there's this raging debate about the best barbecue. And some of the family thinks it's Lexington barbecue, Lexington, North Carolina. Uh, some of them argue about uh, North Carolina barbecue, and my stepdad swears it's it's brisket. So what are your thoughts on that? I'm going to go out because I grew up in eastern North Carolina. So I'm going to go out with the barbecue from eastern North Carolina. It is uh, more of a vinegar-based, and they do it with coleslaw and hush puppies and you know, on and on and on. So I'm, I'm going to go with Eastern North Carolina. I, I, I think I've had it in different places. We always go to Texas when we play. And, you know, the first thing people always say, you want brisket? I'm like, no, nah, I don't. I don't want brisket. <laughs> well, the only thing I love about this thing is I love the hot links. That, that's my, that would be my thing. Like, the hot links that they have in Houston and Dallas, those are my places that, you know, I, I will probably go. There's a, Matter of fact, there's a great place that a former football player um, owns. It's in Dallas called Sweet Georgia Browns. Oh, man, they got mm-hmm. the soul food like like you've gone to heaven. Collard greens, uh, you know, um, pinto beans, chitlin, chitlins, as people like to say. So it's just a, a combination of stuff that's going, it's going to go in well. It's going to kill you, you know, in the long run because it's so fattening. But I'm telling you, it is so good. Well, where I come down on the argument is while they're arguing, I say, okay, pass me the pulled pork and some of that brisket and the coleslaw and and y'all keep arguing. (laughs) (laughs) Those would be the things. Then then in North Carolina, though, that you've got to top all that off with 
the probably the sweetest tea that you've ever had. So you can imagine like people who haven't had tea, you make tea, you get it as sweet as you can, and you go, oh my God. But then if you're in North Carolina, you add a couple more uh, cups of sugar to, to it. So it's more like syrup than it is something to drink. But oh my God, people love it in Eastern North Carolina. Tea and barbecue, those are like the staples. Yeah, and I'm well aware of that. It's one of the great things about going home is, okay, y'all start fighting, I'm going to start eating. <laughs> Love it. Wow, it's, it's hard to transition back into basketball. I want to say one name. I want to say one name and then let you riff on it a little bit. Because okay. uh, the NBA started for me when Akeem Olajuwon was drafted by the Houston Rockets. That was when, mm-hmm. when my family were not sports people, so we didn't sit around and talk about sports. We did go to the Astrodome pretty often. But the NBA started for me when the Rockets in the finals in 81, which was before I was aware of the NBA. But I would like you to talk about Red Auerbach, because this is someone mm-hmm. who is one of the great coaches and front office guys of all time who in your day was the, you know, running the team uh, mm-hmm. with Casey uh, Jones, I think was coach and Bill Fitch were the coaches were there, but talk a little bit about Red Auerbach and what he meant to the NBA and to the Boston Celtics and, and to you. Well, I'm going to tell you this and, and, and I'm going to go a little bit further. Basketball for me began really in Texas. And when I think about Texas Western winning those five black kids that played against University of Kentucky that made it popular for people to play, uh, you know, people of color. But even more so in 1968, I just did a podcast with Don Chaney, who played with the Houston Cougars that had a game in the Astrodome. It was uh, against UCLA, against at that time, Lou Alcindor. Or later on, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Elvin Hayes scored 37 points in that game against Kareem, and I cried. So, you know, basketball for me, that's kind of where it began. Now, I will go forth and talk about Red Arbag, just uh, a genius. When you think about, um, um, you know, creating a system that won. You know, everybody talks about, you know, three-peating and two-peating. The Celtics won eight championships in a row under Red Arbag. And that to me is is absolutely amazing. Uh, the architect of it. Uh, people for a while they were talking about Red Arbag, and um, and and here in Boston. And Red has passed away many years ago. But during Black History Month uh, a couple of years ago, Red Arbag was honored by the Boston Police Department during Black History Month, uh, and a lot of people got upset. And they came to me and asked me about it. And I said, well, and I could say this. I said, it wasn't called Black, not because it's called Black History Month. It's not Black People's Month. And what they were doing, they were honoring Red Arbach because of the couple of things he did, not necessarily winning championships, all that he won, but because he hired the first Black coach, Bill Russell. He had the first starting Black five in the NBA uh, here in Boston. And then to top it off, the first Black player that ever came and played in the NBA was drafted by Red Arbach. So, you know, he was essentially the, 
you know, the, the architect of, of changing things and moving forward, race relations, along with winning basketball. And Red Auerbach only cared about one thing. All he cared about was winning. He didn't care about, you know, if you were dark, if you were light, if you're white. You, no, he wanted the guys who were going to win him basketball games. And he won probably more games than essentially anybody else and obviously more championships because Bill Russell has 11, 11 rings. And I don't think there's anybody else, Phil Jackson, anybody else around who could even talk about it in that vein. We think about 11 championship rings under his tutelage. Well, that's my number one answer when somebody asks me, is it Jordan? Is it Toby? Is it LeBron? I'd go uh, Bill Russell. <laughs> I mean, 11 championships. I don't want to say no one's ever going to win 11 championships. Ever no, again. you can you can I, say that you can say that maybe. <laughs> you you can pretty much say that <laughs> I can't see anybody else winning eleven championships during their career. I, I I can't see it. You know, Kareem by the one about and he played over twenty seven years. I think he has maybe six rings, but Bill Russell has eleven, and all these were with the same team. So I, I don't think anybody else is going to ever get to that point where they have won 11 championships, especially when you talk about one team. Cedric, I have to ask a question about Red, too. Do you think his coaching philosophy that he had back then would ever work in today's NBA? Um, it To a degree it would, but you'd have to include three-point shooting in it. You know, that's the difference. Uh, somebody asked me the other day about comparing eras, and you think about the way Red got guys in shape. And he was looking for fast break opportunities, easy baskets. Now the NBA has transitioned into something that none of us really knew of. Steph Curry has really almost destroyed this league and his ability to knock down threes because guys now, I've, I've seen the Celtics over the last couple of years when Al Horford here would drive me crazy, would get the ball under the rim, could get a layup, and then fling it back out to somebody to take a three. That drives drove and drives me crazy even today. So I, I think the game has just transitioned in a completely different way. But Red Arbach's style of getting easy baskets and defending the basketball, those things still would run true. Offensively, he would have to get guys who were making threes to really compete in this particular era. I think the Houston Rockets are the epitome of what you just talked about because they trade away all their big men and they're going to run a six, five and under team and think they're going to get to the finals. And I, you know, I grew up diehard. Elijah Wan was God practically to me as a little mm -hmm. kid. I mean, I just, I got to know him when I started my career covering the NBA. I was fortunate to really develop a relationship with him and he's a great person, but growing up watching the Rockets play inside out, and where Akeem just, I mean, you could put five defenders on him and he'd dance around and score anyway or make the right play. To what they do now, where they don't even worry about inside the paint. And, and I mean, James Harden, he's ahead of his time because he's been social distancing for years on the defense. <laughs> nor attempts to worry about playing with a big man. I, yeah, I just... It is. I mean, it, it 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 has transitioned into something that we don't know, uh, and I think D'Antoni talked about that earlier. He said when he had Steve Nash and they were playing 
in Phoenix. He said they were doing the three-point shooting. And then he was like, people were talking to him like, well, you maybe you should change up and do He looks back on it and, and uh, he was talking with Steve Nash. He said, maybe we should have done it more. And we would have probably, you know, would have won a championship there. Uh, you know, it's it's to be seen one way or the other if it works. I mean, you're talking about guys right now who are completely void of scoring in the paint, and all they want to do is chuck up the threes. And the record has been a pretty good record. You have to have the personnel to shoot it. Harden is one of them. Uh, Westbrook is not necessarily a three-point threat that you look at. You don't you don't respect them in that way. But everybody else up else on the floor. Uh, uh, Gordon is another guy who shoots the three. So, so they have lined their pockets up, up by shooting the three. And it would have been interesting to see if the pandemic had, you know, had not hit how far the Rockets would have gone this year. So um, I, I, that that's going to be an interesting thing when the games start back, if they start back in, um, and they're saying right now, maybe August. So it will be interesting to see how the Rockets do. So I have you that. play also. Oh, go ahead, Randy. I was about to say, does it like uh, it drives me crazy looking at certain players in the league? A guy like Brooke Lopez, for example, in Milwaukee. Bill and I talk about this all the time, by the way. About, yeah. about you have seven footers in in this league who should be since there's not a lot of big threats in the paint as it is. A guy like Brooke Lopez, who has the skills to be scoring inside the paint, shooting three pointers. It, 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 for me, it drives me crazy because I'm a. I, I became a very big NBA fan back in the '90s, where you know I was a Nets fan, so there wasn't much to cheer about at that point. But still, you were, you watched the the model of the NBA, where you dip it inside to the Elijah ones, to the Robinsons, to the to the Shacks, and then you know work inside mm-hmm. and then push out. Now it's if you find a center who's going to be like you don't you don't see any real inside play. You don't see hook shots. You don't see you know, back to the basket type of play. And for me, that's a frustrating thing for someone who has to call the games and who's, again, who's a legend in this game because, you know, you've certainly done your time. You have, you, uh, you put the work in, you have, you have your number hanging up in, in Boston. How does that feel to see that part of the game sort of be, I don't want to say discontinued, but not sort of ignored at this point? Well, I think ignored is a very good word because I don't think teams are looking to, get those high percentage shots. I think one thing you'll see in the playoffs when it gets down to it, the nuts and bolts of it, I think that that's when you see teams start to try to dial it back in. Now then, you, but everyone right now is a hybrid. Um, you think about the guys, uh, Lokic, Jokic really uh, of, of Denver, or you think about Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is a seven footer who runs the floor well. But his game is transitioned to the new age game that he can shoot the three. He will attack the rim from time to time. So the, the game, the game is just really taken on a whole nother tenor. And, um, you know, when I was playing back in the day, if you were a big man, if you ever put it on the floor and dribble two times, the guards were screaming and yelling at you. And they'd be like, if you were about to shoot the jump shot, they'd be saying, Get your big ass in the damn paint, and I'll give you the ball right there. But those days are now over. If you go to a park and you watch a game being played, the game is transitioned where you have guys 
shooting the threes, even in the park. And there's no line out there. There's no line to shoot the threes. And they're just screaming out threes. So it's just kind of crazy. You think that's an, an evolution that takes place because of the available talent? Or, I mean, I don't think the NBA made a conscious decision to all of a sudden transition to a three-point game. But it seems like we had an, an influx of players who were really talented, like Steph Curry, uh, Clay Thompson, uh, James Harden, guys who really are so good at the outside game that then, uh, and at the same time, you don't have, really, when I look at the NBA and I think who in the modern NBA would compete with Olajuwon and David Robinson and Patrick Ewing and Brad Doherty, and, you know, and I think Joel Embiid, Anthony Davis, if he would have trained differently, he'd be a different player uh, if those guys were around. I think Davis has the tools. How many, I mean, who would be able to handle Shaq in the modern NBA? I, I think, and I wonder if, you know, you mentioned Jokic. His game is very much a uh, put the ball on the floor, jump shots, threes, a multidimensional game. I'm, I'm wondering if the NBA evolved this way because of the influx of talent rather than just deciding, teams deciding we don't want to attack the paint anymore. Well, I think two things happened. One, the fact that the when you brought the people over from the ABA, and that was one of the – when the ABA merged with the NBA, that was one of the rules which came along with it, the three-point shot. Uh, the first three-point shot made in the NBA, I was watching it. My teammate, Chris Ford, shot it and knocked the first one down in the history of the NBA, and the NBA has never looked back since. Uh, you know, for early on, it was looked at as a, a low percentage shot and uh, risk reward wasn't good. And then when guys start shooting 40% from the three point line, and then the biggest word that you use right now that you haven't is the, the, the nasty word analytics, the analytics of the game that people talk about saying if you take well, if you take a, a two, you've been better off taking a three because you if you knock down one three instead of knocking down one two or, or two twos or whatever it is, then you're going to score more points. So, you know, I never knew that in my, my parlance. I never knew math was going to come into play when I got to the NBA. I just didn't – my teacher used to tell me, you know, you have math in everything. I'm like, no, I – I, my math is as long as I'm able to get two and two and two and two. That's all I need to know because pretty much that's how the game was played when I played. So uh, now it is the analytics of the game of when to shoot a three and and when not to take a two. And that's a bad shot if you take a, a two from 15 feet away. Two of the greatest players I know uh, scoring, Kobe Bryant and Paul Pierce, both were masters at the 18 to 15 foot shot, which is now looked at as a bad shot. Right. Yeah, that, that drives me absolutely bonkers because I always got told the closer the shot, the better shot, the better chance you have to make it. And uh, I have to, I'm gonna transition a little bit here. What was it like for you to, as a player, play at the old school Boston Garden and have the impact on the team that you have, win championships, and see your number hanging up uh, in those rafters? Because that's that's rare air right there. That's rare 
that's 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 everyone's dream, and yeah. and, you, and and that's and you have that. Well, if you think about it, and remember when that when my jersey was retired by the Celtics, the thing that I I, I said at my speech, I said no offense to Springfield where the basketball hall of fame is. But if I look up at the, in the, in the, at the garden, uh, that's the hall of fame because the number of championships, the legendary players from Bob Cousy to, you know, uh, Dave Cowens, John Havlicek, Jojo White, you know, you're talking about some of the top 50 players of all time. So uh, it is, uh, it, it's amazing. We think about that transition. Now, you know, I know this is different for you guys, but I'm going to throw out a question to you guys I want to get. And if, here's, here's the interesting thing, because I always like to get different takes on it. Give me your Mount Rushmore of sports. You got four guys you can pick. You can pick different sports or whatever it is. But give me what, if you were building a Mount Rushmore in your, in your backyard where, you know, where you put that swimming pool for your kids, you build a Mount Rushmore instead. Tell me the four people you put back on that Mount Rushmore. All right. Uh, for me, I, two of them are going to be basketball players. Um, one would be Michael Jordan, just because when you're growing up as, as, a, as a kid and you're watching him, man, you're sitting there going, oh, like, it, like that shot against Utah. You're just like, okay, that's it. When I started, when I broke into the business and as an intern with the Nets, Jason Kidd had just come to the, to the Nets, and I, I always was a Jason Kidd fan. And just watching what he was able to do on the court was absolutely amazing. And being up close and getting to know him and seeing on how great he was was okay. Amazing. So that's so those are those are two. Uh, then I go. To, I have to put a football guy in there again. I cover the New York Football Giants on a day to day basis, and the, the poise of Eli Manning to me. Being wow. able, just being able to see the the scrutiny of playing in New York on a daily basis, uh, and and not getting lost in the hate of the of the New York fan base when things were not going well and the the pressure mm. of the media. Just being able to withstand all that and still go out there and play, I just think to me it just says so much about a, 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 an athlete's character, which is not okay. really talked about today. And, that, that, and then, that's a different one. That's a really different. I hadn't heard that one, but okay. And number four would be, um, again, going back to that class, that level of class. You got to say Derek Jeter for me being in the New York market and just being able to see on how he not only carried himself as a professional on the field, um, not only with his players but also to the media because he was one of those players as far as a media, as from media perspective, he would let you on the porch but he wouldn't let you in the house. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I like yeah. that. I might, I might have to use that on my pod, on this podcast <laughs> Zoom meeting today. He let you on the porch, but he wouldn't let you in the house. There, there was a woman. There was a woman who had one today. I'm using, and the woman is uh, she's 97 years old. She said, "Age is just a number, but mine is unlisted." Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> I like that a lot too. I like that too. But just, but Jeter, yeah, like, and and okay. also she. And seeing what he does in the community too, you know, the, the amount of time and effort he put into the Derek Jeter Foundation too is just okay. absolutely amazing. So, now okay. Bill. Okay. All right, Bill, who you have? Well, this is how Randy and I really got hooked up uh, and became really good friends, is because we both think as much about what a player does in the community as what they do on the court. 
Okay. Um, if a guy's a great player but is not great in the community, I, it, they'd lose uh, some respect for me. Okay. If they're great in both places, then I really uh, – those are the ones I really prop up. Like Steph Curry is incredible both places. But my, we do Mount Rushmore a lot, but we haven't done cross sports. Okay. And I could put four basketball players without even blinking. Uh, a lot of the ones going to be regardless. Hakeem is uh, the greatest player I've ever seen play any sport, uh, watching as many games as I did where he had the defensive pressure that he had and just chugged it off. I mean, just was doing ballet on the court with the ball and, and changed the game forever for, for the center position. So it came number one, no matter okay. what, for me. Okay. All-time NBA leader in Staubach. I tell you, I showed some middle school basketball players a highlight reel of Akeem two years ago. I was asked to speak to a, a middle school basketball team, and I, they don't. They said we're just not playing any defense. So uh, I showed a video of Akeem that was like his top ten defensive plays of all time, and these kids were falling on the floor and rolling, going, oh, all this stuff, you know. I was like, that was every night in the summit. I mean, that was just yeah. standard practice. He was, he, oh, not a, I'm not a Chicago guy. I'm not a homer. And I got tired of watching Michael Jordan because the refs just, every time he missed a shot, they called a foul. And I just got so tired of watching that. <laughs> My favorite shooting guard of all time is Clyde Drexler. Now, again, yeah. being from Houston, California, Majama, uh, and I, and my grandmother was a diehard Blazers fan. So I watched the Blazers quite a bit growing up back and forth between Houston and Oregon and, and North Carolina. But watching Clyde go to work, and, and when he came to Houston at just the right time, when Akeem was injured, they were trying to defend their championship, and he picked up and led the team until Akeem got back. Uh, so Drexler is definitely uh, up okay. on my Mount Rushmore. Okay. I did also grow up in the Astrodome. My mom's uh, hospital, she was a nurse at MD Anderson uh, working with cancer patients, and so we got to go to a lot of Astros games, and Nolan Ryan was – I mean, it's too bad the, the Astros never gave him run support <laughs> because unlike now where they have great pitching and great hitting, when I was a kid, they only had great pitching. And yeah. uh, Nolan Ryan was just uh, – he'd strike out 15 and, and pitch a – give one run up and lose one to nothing. And <laughs> just incredible um, player. And the other guy is Craig Biggio. Wow. Biggio had to transform his game. When he came in, he was a catcher. And the Astros recognized that because he was fast, that he was going to ruin his knees and lose his speed if he continued to play catcher. Yeah. So he transitioned from being an all-star catcher to being an all-star second baseman and used that speed a lot more and, and would always lead the league in getting hit by pitch. And that toughness where he wasn't afraid to lean in and take a hit, um, I just – you talk about guys that are tough and gritty um, and, and guys that didn't come in with, you know, Jordan had this ungodly natural ability. LeBron James, just, you know, the gods of basketball forged him in the womb and sent him out to play or, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, these guys are amazing. Um, but the guys that had to really work uh, and, and it's hard not, I need a fifth head for Dirk Nowitzki. No, you can't, you, can't, you can't have five. All you can have is four. You, get, you, get, you can't, I got, change, I got you my can't four. change Mount Rushmore. And I'm really, I got my I'm four, not, but. 
love your answers because, Akeem, people ask me right now who the best basketball player was of all time. And I always say it was Akeem Olajuwon. And that's because I played with him. And no offense to Jordan and all these other people, even Bill Russell. But Akeem Olajuwon controlled the game more than anybody else, offensively and defensively. He was, he was just lights out when it came to scoring the basketball, and he was lights out when it became the defending the basketball. So he covered more of the game than anybody else. I played a game with him. One of my last games, we were playing Seattle. Akeem had 48, 22, 8, and 8. And that was just like, wow. And I, I sat there, and as much as great as Larry Bird, uh, you know, is or was, you know, I, I still believe Akeem Olajuwon to me is, is, is that guy when I say the best basketball player ever to play. There was a sequence against the Celtics in the finals, and it was in Boston Garden, where he had three straight plays on the defensive end where he tipped the ball away and dribbled it full length of the court and dunked it on the other end. And that's to me still one of the great, uh, I mean, Bird had huge moments. One of my, even though I got to know Bird a little bit and I, I don't care for him personally, particularly, but uh, as a player, that guy, uh, there was a play where, and I, you maybe you remember which game and everything, but he was in the finals and I want to say it was like a game seven and it was in Boston Garden. They were playing the Lakers and they were down two with just a, maybe two seconds left on the clock and they inbound to bird shoots the ball. He turns to Pat Riley and says game and walks off and the ball goes through the net behind him after he has called game in the face of the opposing coach. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Today's NBA doesn't that's, have that. That sounds about right. Actually. <laughs> there's, not an, there's an edge missing or a, I mean, who in the NBA today plays both ends like that? Who's going to get, 40 points, 20 rebounds, eight blocks, eight steals. I mean, LeBron's not going to get that. Well, I gave you mine at that time and asked me about it. I said, I took Muhammad Ali, and nobody can be wrong in their picks now. I took Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, and then I went off the board and uh, a little bit, and I took what I thought was the greatest female athlete of all time. I went with Serena Williams. I like Cynthia Cooper a lot when you talk about female. Yeah, uh, but Cooper Cooper wasn't Serena Williams, though. I mean, you, you can have <laughs> yours, but she's not. Serena, Serena Williams. Oh, excuse me. I didn't pick Bill Russell. Excuse me. I, I actually picked Tiger Woods was the other oh. person. Okay. That, that changes a little bit because Tiger is, yeah, yeah it, it's, he, he, revel, he changed the game of golf. Yes. Yes. And he gave he gave it an audience which it never had before, and it made golf must see TV. Well, yeah, and that that is he he made golf relevant for people who live in the inner city. <laughs> it's like you see brothers out suddenly get golf clubs. You're like, what the hell? <laughs> Got to be like Tiger. <laughs> so, he, Tiger Woods, that's why I think that he changed so many other things. Muhammad Ali, obviously, you know, the way he lived and his life and, and all those things went along with it. Michael Jordan, what happened to him. So I don't think anybody could be wrong. Those are great choices. Those, those, uh, 
those rocket choices, those Houston choices you made were interesting to me. And the guy I always think that didn't, that got so much love was Earl Campbell. And yeah, man, I, I almost I love, I love I Earl. Almost but, said Earl Campbell because yeah, but Earl Campbell is the fact right now, which is really sad that essentially he can't even walk right now. Really, I mean, oh. all the hit. You see him, they. They, he'll come to a couple of the uh, rocket games. Essentially, mm -hmm. they are wheeling him in in a wheelchair. So those, those are sad moments when I think about how he was and the jersey tearing up off of him and, you know, the way he was running. God, he was amazing. Cedric, too, one thing about Tiger also, which I think you'll find very interesting, for pop culture, and I mean pop culture, there's these new little figurines called Pops. And mm – -hmm. And, and like the NBA has a, a little bit of a line out. They have, they just put Larry and Magic out and they have Michael out, a lot of the current players. There's only one golf pop out there and it's Tiger. Really? <laughs> it, it, like I saw it yesterday at the store. So if you want to talk about how much of um, an impact he's made on not just golf, but on society as a whole, pops, you know, they, they take what's in, like they, they make shows of these, they make figures of shows and what's popular out there. Tiger Woods is the only golfer that has a pop figurine out there. So, you know, I think that, that probably is true, but you think about most of the golfers out there, they look like anybody else. If, um, McElroy, if they put him, if he walked down the street, I don't think anybody would know who the hell he was. I mean, he just yeah. looked like another guy walking through. So, there's not a, you know, I, I think that's a big difference when you think about how guys look and, 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 you know, all that stuff. But Tiger just has that unique appearance that you look at and how his Asian, uh, you know, his African-American, whatever all these, whatever title he wanted to give himself has has just generated a buzz, which is because golf was always looked at as the elitist game. It was the elitist game. And then when Tiger started playing, it started to become cool. It was, you know, cool to be like, yo, Tiger Woods, I'm going to watch golf on Sunday. And when Tiger had that red that red shirt on, I knew it was lights out. It, close the door. We ain't got to talk about this no more. He's going to hit some great shot. And, you know, and then what he's done to come back and win at the Masters a couple of years ago at his age, you know, when all these younger guys are coming for him, that was outstanding. Do you think he can? Uh, you think he can catch him? You think he can catch uh, the record here? I, there's a possibility. Uh, there's a lot of young guns out there who are hitting just as long, just as straight. But if Tiger can never get you to a Sunday, you know, looking looking at you eye to eye, <laughs> most of these dudes are going to wilt. They're they're going to. And we've seen it over and over again. I remember uh, reading Colin Montgomery uh, was talking about him one time. He said, you know, he's like, hey, who is he? Just another guy who gets out there. And Tiger went out there and smoked them. And, and he, he walked away going, you know what? I think I've seen the future. <laughs> and the future is that woods. I thought the only Funko Pops were uh, Disney princesses. No, no. <laughs> I have an eight-year-old daughter, so maybe it's just the only ones that are in my house. You must, you must have, you must have young kids or something. Maybe that's yeah. it. Well, that's. I, I have an eight-year-old daughter. That's all I can. Well, yeah, that's why you would. That's why you would think that. My my yeah. old my youngest daughter right now is thirty-four. So 
We don't think about pop versus <laughs> about to have a girl and, and maybe this one I'll get back into it. But right now, those aren't even in my wheelhouse. <laughs> Cedric, let's, real quick before we, we before we before we uh you know get too far off track, I, I gotta ask you about the current Celtics team. Uh, from, from where you're, you're seeing this this season, losing Alpha, I, I've said the bill, especially during the trade deadline time, I thought the exact thing that this Celtics team needs right now after losing Kyrie Irving to Brooklyn is Al Horford or a player similar to that. I feel right now that they're, they're missing a, a piece in the middle, uh, a big man that would really, really, really uh, help take them to the next level. Jason Tatum, I feel, has a little bit more uh, room to play this year. Uh, What's what's your take on this current Celtics team, and how far do you, if they can get to a normal playoff format come August, where do the Celtics fit in this equation? Well, one thing you guys mentioned before is that the dominant centers aren't even needed anymore. Uh, you, I don't think anybody when it went into this year and said that Daniel Tice was going to be that answer. He's been he's been the glue to what the Celtics have done. Six about six ten from Germany, able to block shots, run the floor, shoot the threes. So Al would have been great to have. Al was here. Al decided to take more money uh, in Philly, which I couldn't blame him. But you would Al Horford would have fit in perfectly with the scheme of play and the way things are if he was here in Boston right now. But uh, you know, at that time, so. I don't know what this team is going to do, trade deadline or whatever. I think that sometimes the best move is no move. And I didn't see anybody who would improve the stock of the Boston Celtics, especially when you think about a big, and you, unless you think about an Anthony Davis or Jokic or somebody like that, and you're not going to get those kind of pieces unless you tear your team up. I mean, you can look, Andre Drummond was out there to be had. Cleveland, I mean, Detroit essentially gave him away. Would he have fit into the scheme of what you're doing in Boston? No, he wouldn't have. So I think that the day of the dinosaur and the big man, you know, those are those those are kind of alike right now. They're they're very much in, in kindred forms. And what about the, for I the rest of the? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Bill. I was just going to say I thought that when Kyrie left and they got Kimba, I thought. And I said this to Randy in one of our shows we were doing. We're going to see a much better year from Jason Tatum and a lot of the other guys because, for whatever reason, Kyrie is not not the player he was when he first was playing with LeBron. Um, but Kemba Walker is hungry to ha and ready to play with some better players. Now, Charlotte did put great players around him, like Boston. Well, here's here's the thing: I will to and I will respectfully disagree. Um, when I think about Kyrie Irving, Kyrie Irving maybe was the best point guard physically the Celtics have ever had. Ball handling, shooting, speed, strength, quickness, but his persona, the other part of him, didn't fit with the guys you have on the floor now. Um, there were times when Kyrie was more aloof, and because of that, there was a separation between him, Jason Tatum, those guys, those younger guys, Brown, uh, that uh, just didn't gel. The chemistry just wasn't there. Uh, Kyrie Irving has talked for a while, like, yeah, I'll, I'll get into a situation where I want to play one-on-one -on -one against um, 
for a while uh, against Kimba. And people say, yeah, let's line that up. Well, he probably would beat Kimba. I think he's a, a better scorer. He's younger. He's stronger. He's faster. He's quicker. But Kimba Walker, his persona fits in better right now for the Celtics than Kyrie Irving did over the last couple of years. I don't think that – I think he is just as good as he was in, in – and when he was in Cleveland, maybe he's slowing down just a little bit. But, man, he is, his talent level is just off the chart. Well, not only that, too, but you have to remember that Eastern Conference final series against Cleveland, they didn't have Kyrie Irving on the floor. They didn't have Gordon Haywood on the floor. So that team grew together with uh, Marquise Morris, and, and they had a, a tight-knit group. And all of a sudden you have Kyrie who, to, to his credit, he is a he's a guy who needs to have the ball in his hand to be effective, and there was a chemistry that was built with that Eastern Conference Finals team that fell yeah. short. And so I, I, that was my big thing with Kyrie was you're taking a guy who needs to have the ball in his hand to be effective, and you had a group a chemistry a good chemistry group, and mm -hmm. and you're trying to maybe trying to fit a uh, a square in a circle peg. That's that's the best way of saying. it. Well, you had several players that you were trying to bring back. Gordon Hayward, they come back from an injury. You had loaded this team up. People had already said this team is going to the finals, regardless. With Al Horford and, you know, you having Terry Rozier had a big year before, and that's the chemistry you talk about, uh, Scary Terry. So all these guys, you put all these combinations together. And I said there was going to be Al. I thought it was going to be uh, the toughest year for Brad Stevens because he just had too much talent. You know, it's like, essentially, like you going in your refrigerator and you're looking, well, you know, I, I can go in there, mind, but you'll, if you go in your refrigerator and you got cakes and pies and cookies and drinks, and you're like, damn, which one do I want to have? And the, the, the cupboard was too stocked. You had too many, I mean, you didn't have, a, you had too many chiefs and not enough, Indians under there and and I think everybody was an alpha and you had to have somebody who wasn't an alpha male you know playing on that team somebody who was going to take a subservient role and you didn't see that and what about for the, this year for the rest of the Eastern Conference uh you know Toronto losing Kawhi Leonard has really they, they've really held their own and showed the grit of a champion uh, Milwaukee is just a very stacked team from number one all the way down to number 15. And then you have Miami, who, uh, who Bill and I have both said, I feel that they're playing above their expectation mm -hmm. level. Uh, Brooklyn, who's gone through a lot of injuries. The Indiana Pacers, who Nate McMillan does not get the credit that he deserves as a head coach. He's being able to make a lot out of very little. Uh, and the Philadelphia 76ers, from what I'm understanding, who just can't stand being around each other. So, now, what do you think uh, for this Eastern Conference, the, the, if assuming that we go to the regular playoff format when we come back, what do you think as far as the Eastern Conference is concerned? Well, I think that you look at the top team would be Milwaukee, the way they play. Uh, I think that that's – Giannis has been, again, the MVP of this league, the way he's played and, and the way he's grown as a player. The players surrounding him, uh, the ancillary pieces, uh, you start to look at those. Uh, Siakam um, up in Toronto has stepped into the shoes of Kawhi Leonard after he left Toronto and, and played well. Lowry is there. 
the thing I'd be interested too to see, and I, I was talking to a player about it yesterday, was if you're Brooklyn right now, K, KG is KD has been out for a while. Is he able to come back and play during the playoffs? Because you're talking about essentially a year's separation. Will he be back into the fold? So, I mean, it's just it, it could be really interesting to see. And if all these guys are healthy, one thing that you look at in the NBA right now, which I think is that people don't talk about, and we talk about this pandemic, we're talking essentially about guys who have basketballs in their hands almost every single day of their life once they start playing. You can clearly look and say now there are guys like a Jason Tatum who said he hadn't touched a basketball in two and a half months. How is that going to affect him? Guys who haven't played in, in like two months. That that's just that's gonna be eerie to get back on the floor and compete. So the team that's able to, I guess, gel the quickest and get back into playing shape, that's gonna be the most dangerous team. Yeah, that's that I, two two months not picking up a basketball. Wow, that's crazy to me. Yeah. I pick it up with my PS4 every day, but, uh, you know. Yeah, that's <laughs> – On my PS4, wow. I can play with Ajuan <laughs> and Drexler and Tracy Grady and Yao Ming. And <laughs> okay, so, yeah. so Cedric, hey. we, we have to ask this question, Cedric. How cool is it to see yourself in a video game? That, to me, is the is the real best question you can probably ask somebody. How does it feel to see well, yourself in a video game? You know what? I don't, I don't look at those things. I've heard that I'm in those things. What is more amazing to me, and i got to get down to the bottom of this, I've never got paid for being in one of those games. So, <laughs> so How does I that know, I want to know what the financial ramifications are. Like, I would love to – like, if they put you in these games as you, then somebody should be cutting me a check some way. But, that, but I, I haven't but seen a check yet. That brings up a very, very, very good point because, we, I mean, again, told you I'm a Nets fan. I was around that Nets team when they made the NBA Finals for two years, and one of those teams is actually in the game. And they only have, like, five, I think maybe seven players of the – that's 15 man roster. So I said, okay, those guys probably just didn't sign any type of contract. But now that you're saying that you didn't see anything, because I thought every you guys get like a royalty check for that. You know, we, that, that, you know what? That's the word. That's the key point. We should and we're supposed to be getting one, but I've never gotten one check, nor did I ever sign a contract to talk about me being in one ah, of those. Ah, all right. So, so that's why I, I talked to my buddy Gerald Henderson. Uh, who played with me. I talked to Norm Nixon, who played with me, who played with me, with, and he was with the Clippers, but most of his best part of his career, he was with the Lakers. And most of us haven't seen a check or don't even know anything about it. So I, I, my son is playing in one of the games, and he's playing the game. So, Dad, yeah, I'm you, Dad, in the game. He's <laughs> like, you are? <laughs> Some, somebody need to holler at me. Somebody need to call me about some of these dead presidents because I, I haven't even, uh, you know, even found wow. anybody any money. No. So I think it, I think it would be cool, though, but though. I just don't know. That's interesting. Huh. That's real interesting because I was talking to a couple different guys about that, and I was talking to Kendall Gill. I was talking with uh, – Kenny Anderson and a couple of some of these other guys. And when we talk about NBA 2K, I never even brought that up until we just talked about it. But I was under the assumption 
that you guys had to sign on for that to and then it was maybe or maybe it was from the NBA um, you know alumni association I, I I didn't know so this is this is I'm shocked by this don't worry I was too buddy <laughs> I'm shocked. you, you, you want to be shocked I'm like I'm more shocked than you thinking about like well I've never gotten a check I've never gotten oh. a role anything out of it and you know I had a call into the NBA uh, when this thing went before the pandemic and somebody's supposed to be getting back to me, but uh, I've never gotten a dollar uh, from any of these games or any, any kind of distribution like that. I, I bet you Michael. Early on, that was a, that was an issue because when the, like NBA live 95 was, I think the first really good, uh, I think it was for super Nintendo way back. Mm -hmm. Like George, you had, Chicago had number 23 at shooting, but they didn't call in Michael Jordan. Yeah. I know, like the Rockets, when they got Barkley, they had number four, started forward, but it wasn't. Uh, now, you had Robert Ory, number 25, Randy. There you go. We have to mention Robert Ory every show. But a lot of the guys were there, but some of them didn't sign whatever they had to sign. And didn't, so then their names were not used in the game. So I'm shocked yeah. that they're using your name and your likeness and you're not compensated for that well we're, we're gonna get down to the end of this I, I, got, look, I got plenty of time on my hands right now and i need to get to a lawyer whoever it is but you know i i have not seen any kind of royalties coming from that man but that'll be another thing i'll use to find out if, when i have my zoom today find out if i can find me a lawyer in the bunch who could represent me and you guys were saying this in the what the why to what is it called the k what well, uh, listen, NBA 2K. Uh, I, NBA for the, 2K. For the right. fact that I, for the fact that I love the game, I don't know if we should have done this. It's now starting next year. They're not going to have any of the legend teams left in there. <laughs> but that just means they don't have to buy next year's version. <laughs> yeah, but not, well, not only that though, I will say this: I guarantee you, Michael's getting a check. I guarantee oh, you, Scotty's got a check. Michael's getting a check if you're using Michael in it. There were certain guys who didn't sign, and I think Michael was one of the guys who didn't sign um, the players' deal. And I think you had to have that much power where you didn't. And that's that's the same thing when he came with the Last Dance. Uh, you know that he went back and he bought. He 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 ended up buying the rights to that Last Dance, so it's being distributed under his name, and yeah. wow. he is. It, oh my God! He must be, and and is Scottie Pippen getting paid for the Last Dance? Is Horace Grant? All those guys? I, I don't know. I'd like. I really like to know if they were or not. What was your opinion of the documentary? Uh, I like one of the things I said. Michael was in my my Mount Rushmore, and more from the player aspect of just you know finding a way to win and having that drive and desire to be the best. And I think that's what every athlete should want to have is that drive and desire to be the best. This documentary may not have shown Michael in the best light in some of his behavior, but from a, from a athlete versus athlete perspective, you always want to beat that guy. That's always the big knock against LeBron, right? Michael stopped guys from winning championships. Other people have won championships on the LeBron's watch. And you know what? I love how you guys say that. <laughs> it's almost like when Michael Jordan first got in the league that he started winning championships. Nope. No, he, he didn't. He didn't. Michael Jordan went many times when he was in the first round, got beat. 
Robert Parrish, I did a podcast with Robert Parrish, who played with the Celtics. And he peered in and, and, and put his head real close. He said, remember, Cedric, when he got that 61 points in the Boston Garden? He lost. He got his ass kicked. So I think that, yeah, we're forgetting part of the history that goes along with it. Right now, you'd have thought that it only started the last day. It only started when Michael started winning. Basketball only started when Michael Jordan started winning. Well, well, before that, he was getting beat by Detroit, by Boston, by Milwaukee, by Cleveland. All these teams were handing Michael his ass during that time. So I, that's the one thing I don't particularly care about the documentary. It's like he is probably one of the greatest players yeah. ever. But it almost, again, seems like his career started when he won, when he lost to Detroit that first year. And then from then on, he was winning everything. But there were many years where Michael Jordan took a nail. Yeah, he had to figure it out. A lot, a, Hakeem had to figure it out. Those great players, sometimes they have to figure out that it's not just about them. They've got to figure out the value of their teammates, uh, the value of a pass. <laughs> um, and I think one of the uh, one of the things I, that Randy and I have talked about, we did a whole episode on this, when Olajuwon was drafted, um, mm-hmm. they had Ralph Sampson, the Rockets. Right. And the Blazers, Carol Dawson told me this story the, right before he retired. I sat down with Carol Dawson in his office. He was a general manager of the Rockets. And he told me this story. And he said, yeah, we got a phone call from the Blazers. And they said, look, send us Ralph Sampson. We'll send you Clyde Drexler and our pick. Wow. So the Rockets could have had Elijah Wan, Drexler, and Jordan all on the same team. Wow. And when you think I mean, think that's none think of those guys were the player that they became when they were rookies, when they were young players. None of them. Bill's coming out a little distorted. Um, yeah. I also want to throw um, something else at you, Cedric, too, because I, I know you were around the Celtics. I'm going to turn my video off again. Yeah, I want uh, Cedric. Well, he's fixing this. I wanted to throw something else at you. Um, I know you were around the Celtics when uh, Reggie Lewis was uh, was uh, had his incident and he passed away. Uh, there was a player on the Nets by the name of Drazen Petrovic who uh, mm-hmm. I think helped open the door. Um, when I was 13 years old, I won a contest where I got to go to shoot around and I got to watch mm-hmm. Drazen practice. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I never saw a shooter like that. He shot 200 jump shots. Before practice, <laughs> went through practice and then shot another hundred. Um, you remember the, around that time frame, uh, I was only 13, so I only have a vivid memory of a guy from the, who's, um, whose jersey's retired in Brooklyn, who was retired in Jersey. I have to ask, what was your impressions of Drazen Petrovic? Because he sort of helped open the door to the international flavor in the NBA. Well, he was the, he was the scorer. He, he had the ultimate confidence in his game. And I think one of the things you said, I think kind of helped true here with the great players now, is that great players really work on their craft maybe a little bit more. Uh, Larry Bird was the guy who got there really early and shot. 
Then you think about Ray Allen, who's one of the greatest shooters in history oh of the God, game. Would, 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 would come to the game maybe maybe three hours before the game and would be over there. He'd leave the hotel at 3 o'clock for a 7 o'clock game, 7.30 game, and he'd be over there shooting by himself in the arena. Now it's become commonplace with a lot of players to do that. Uh, Steph Curry, before each game, especially in Golden State, they let fans in, I think, almost 45 minutes before they normally they used to open the gates because those fans come there just to see Steph Curry go through warm-ups. Not, not a game, as, as my man Alvison would say. Not, not, not a game, not a real game, but they come to see him shoot 45 minutes before, you know, they actually should be opening the doors just to see Steph Curry uh, score. So uh, Drajan uh, Petrovic, he uh, created a whole nother uh, uh, level of scoring. And, and the European players, uh, you know, today uh, should thank him more than anybody else. Uh, you know, Dirk, Dirk, who's probably to me, I used to talk, talk to, you know, in legend with Dirk around here saying he was, you know, like Larry Bird and people would just like go crazy. They would, you know, literally want to, you know, put me on a stake and burn me out there. But it was, uh, if you look back and now in hindsight, you're going, man, he wasn't far off when he talked about Dirk and Larry in the same vein. I mean, Larry to me is still a greater player, but Dirk is not chopped liver when you think about, the way he changed the game for big shooting the threes and guys outside the paint. A lot of guys right now still have the one-legged shot that they, they shoot like Dirk and all these things. Dirk, essentially, I remember Kevin Garnett, uh, who's with the Celtics, was one of the maybe the toughest defenders I think I've ever been around. And I asked him, I said, what is your toughest de defensive assignment? He said, Dirk Nowitzki. He said, I can't leave him. If you're say if he's setting the pick, I just say, dude, you got to fight through because I cannot leave this guy. So there are a lot of guys in this league who have changed the standards of the way we look at the game being played. Dirk also holds the record for having played with the most players in his career. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which that's an unofficial record. You know what? <laughs> I would I would I would want you to you know what you say that I want you to go back and look look that over again. Because I would want to say what probably would be Robert Parrish. Mm, really? You, you could, yeah, you might want to go back and look at that. Because Robert Parrish played for over, I think, over 20 years or 21, something crazy in this league. Played more games than anybody else. So I would think that he probably played with more players than Dirk did. And Vince Carter's in that conversation, too. Vince Carter. Yeah. I say it jokingly because every year at Media Day, we have to get a whole new set of players to, to figure out who's on the team because the Mavs were always letting yeah. everybody go and find everybody do different people all the time. And Dirk and, uh, and Rick Carlisle worked a lot of magic getting that team to the playoffs later in, in Dirk's Dirk career. Was, it was just, Dirk was the consistent thing in that batter. Yes, he uh, was. What's it There's like? One more thing. One more thing in the in history. Digging back a little bit, that I have to ask mm -hmm. you before we go, and that is, you were in Houston as a Rocket uh, when the Rockets traded Ralph Sampson. Yes. 
And that was one of the biggest, you know, the Twin Towers were supposed to be the big thing. And, and Bill Fitch never seemed like even played them together a lot of the time, which frustrated me as a kid who knew nothing except I wanted to watch Akeem play. But what was it like being there for that when it seemed like Ralph was supposed to be this great player and he just didn't pan out that way? Well, Ralph, physically, there were a lot of things that Ralph couldn't do. He had his knees were getting bad. Uh, he didn't, he wasn't heavy, so you could push him off the blocks easily. And you, instead of getting a dunk, he'd have to sell it for a 15 footer. You couldn't do that with Elijah Wan. Elijah Wan was his lower body was, you know, like a tree trunk. You might as well walk up to a tree and start pushing it, and that's how far it was going to move. So, <laughs> so the so the Rockets, what they did, they had the choice. They made the choice. They said, either we're going to go with Akeem or we're going to try to play them both together. And in hindsight, you're going, that was the right decision to make. For sure. We got, we, at that time, we ended up getting Joe Barry Carroll to play along with Elijah Wan. And um, I say it just, Ralph, it, the, the fit wasn't as good as people said. Once you got Elijah Wan, Ralph became almost like a, a, a byproduct, I think. My, my last question for you has to do about the broadcasting side of uh, mm -hmm. what you're doing now. And what's it like with the team that you have? Um, and what do you do for, like, as far, as far as preparation is concerned? How do you usually approach your broadcasts? Well, preparation for the NBA is a little different. In fact, you only have about maybe – maybe 200 guys that you really have to know. And when you have to know that last guy on the bench, it must be a blowout. And you have to worry about him. But I think that, you know, what I do is I try to watch um, maybe some tapes from time to time. Uh, what I do is try to get to the games early. And normally I'll know one of the assistant coaches on the other team. And I'll talk to him about the strengths and the weaknesses of their team. And uh, you just kind of go from there. Doing radio is different because my window of opportunity is a very small one. What I do is I talk in sound bites. So my sound, my sound, sound bite might be like, you know, you give me something great, and then I have to top that. I might say, oh, give me a sandwich. Or, you know, that was one of the great, or something I might say that might be crazy that people would say, wow, I, I can't believe you say that. But I said, my window of opportunity is small. So each one of the words I use, I have to get a huge bang for my buck. So that's why, that's what I do as a broadcaster. I, I try to learn my personnel, know the game. I know the game enough to tell you about the game. It's a simple, simple game played the right way. If you play it the right way, it's a beautiful game to watch. And um, like I said, some of the game now, I don't understand it as much, but um, uh, being be, doing the footwork or the groundwork for a broadcast to me is relatively simple. Where can everybody find you on social media? Uh, the real Cedric Maxwell. Uh, you can go to go find my podcast um, on um, on uh, Google, or you can go to um, uh, YouTube. You can do you can find it any way like that. Cool. 
Listen, I, as from all of us at Back Sports Page and here at the Hardwood Huddle, we thank you for giving us uh, some time today. I hope it was fun for you. That Mount Rushmore question totally threw me off my game, and it really got me thinking. I'm like, man, I should have said this one. I should have said that one. I should have put Petrovic in there. I, you know, I'm, I'm kicking myself now, but I, I'll, I'll stand by my answers. Well, that's the thing about you can't, you can't be wrong. You can they can question you, but you can't be wrong with your, your picks because they're your picks. Yeah. Your Mount Rushmore. Yeah, it's, 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 it's your, our opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's your opinion. Everybody has kind of a different one. So, gentlemen, thank you very much. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank Good, you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Great to talk right, to you. Take it easy.